think I'd like to go back home and take it easy. We're playing an MP3 of Neil Young's Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere. But Neil Young himself dismissed the sound of MP3s as unlistenable. In fact, he even started his own music streaming company called Pono to create high-definition files that surpass the sound of MP3s. Everybody knows this is nowhere. Everybody, everybody knows. Everybody knows. As MP3s are coming under fire by Neil Young and others, there is a composer who's finding value in the format by discovering the ghostly sounds that get left out when the file is made. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, the ghost in the MP3. Later in the show, an architect has constructed soundscapes of New York City buildings. Um, There's a wonderful quote by John Cage that says, when we are listening, what we mostly hear is noise, but if we really listen, we find it fascinating. But first, before the MP3 revolutionized the music industry in the 1980s, music files were large and took up too much room on computer hard drives. So audio engineers created this way for people to store many songs on one device. Ryan McGuire is a Ph.D. student in composition and computer technologies at the University of Virginia. He's been finding those sounds that get left out of the MP3s and then creating ghostly compositions. Ryan, your project is called The Ghost in the MP3, and I didn't fully appreciate it until I listened to what you had made of a song from a while back that's now known as The Mother of the MP3. Yeah, The Mother of the MP3. It's a really evocative phrase, isn't it? Tom's Diner by Suzanne Vega was a huge hit in the early 90s. It was sort of everywhere you went. And one of the people that was listening to that song back then was Karl-Heinz Brandenburg, who was an engineer for the Fraunhofer Corporation in Germany, and they were tasked with creating the MP3. So one day while uh, Brandenburg, the story goes, uh, was working on his MP3 algorithm, he walked out into the hallway and heard on the radio Tom's Diner playing, and he heard this a cappella voice singing, you know, do 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 And he thought, oh my goodness, this would be really difficult to make into an MP3 because it's there's nothing there. It's so bare, and it's just this beautiful voice. And how do I encode that into an MP3? Let's play it to let people know how beautiful it is mm-hmm. and what the difficulty was. I am sitting in the morning at the diner on the corner. I am waiting at the counter for the man to pour the coffee. And he fills it only halfway. And before I even argue, he is looking out the window at somebody coming in. Most popular music has drums, guitars, all these things going on that compete for your attention. And you can only hear so much at once. Uh, But with Tom's Diner, it's just this solo voice in a sort of reverberant room. And to capture that sound really well, 
is a really difficult challenge when you're using something like an MP3 that erases so much information. So how did it go for him when he did convert it? It sounded horrible. <laughs> it sounded really <laughs> terrible. And I think it took months. It took a really long time, and it sounded just wretched. It came out sounding like a demon uh, on the other end when he first made it into an MP3. Eventually he got it right, though. Eventually they got it right. And now you can't really tell the difference when you listen to a really high-quality MP3 of Tom Steiner and a WAV file. Let's hear it now. I am sitting in the morning at the diner on the corner. I am waiting at the counter for the man to pour the coffee. And he fills it only halfway. And Apologies to artists who don't like the MP3s. <laughs> I can't tell the difference. Right, and most people can't under most circumstances. It's There are so many other factors that... Uh, degrade the quality of audio. You have, a, you know, the speakers that you're listening over, background noise, whatever the acoustics of the room you're in are, that it sort of makes the difference between the uncompressed file and the MP3 negligible under most circumstances. And that's really a testament to how clever the algorithm is, and I think that's a big part of why it's still in such wide use today. But then not so long ago, you did something very cool. You took the WAV file and you subtracted the compressed version and created a file of the music that gets left out of an MP3. Right. I was really interested in what this material that we throw away is. It's, it's sort of an endangered species of data or of sound that is really absent from our contemporary listening environments. And I wanted to hear it. I wanted to know what it sounds like. So this is the material that's deleted from the mp3 of Tom's Diner. That's so interesting. It's not in some ways as beautiful, obviously, as the full version, mm -hmm. but it has some really interesting and haunting aspects to it. Yeah, it's very atmospheric. You end up with a lot of the sort of reverberant material and breathy sounds. And the first time that I heard it, when I finally, when I did these calculations and, and got this sound out, I thought that it had tremendous potential to be made into music. It's, it's the things that add beauty to the original, but they're isolated. So on their own, they don't sound like much, but they have tremendous potential to be made into something really beautiful, I thought. When you first were able to extract this and realize this was the unheard sound, were you thrilled? Yeah, I was really, it was like a eureka kind of moment. I, I you know, because I didn't know what it was going to sound like. And so I, I had written all this code and waited a really long time. And then it popped out and it sounded, it just had this sort of really distinct sound. It didn't really sound like anything I had ever heard before. And to, to for a composer uh, and for somebody that's making art, making work out of sound, that's like the most exciting thing. So I thought, yes. You did something very cool with it. I want to play the composition that you call The Ghost in the MP3. Yes. So I, I wrote a few different algorithms to calculate what gets lost in the MP3 and uh, kind of chopped them up, amplified bits of them, rearranged them into a composition that to me is, it's Tom's Diner brought back to life from the material that we throw out when we make MP3s. This one, this one I call Modernist. 
Oh, that is so nice. It's so eerie, haunting, beautiful, that you can imagine a a, a movie producer would sure. want to know, how did you do that? Yeah, and actually I immediately thought of film when I made it and I found a video artist to make a similar video uh, where we took the music video from Tom's Diner and compressed it in using like YouTube compression and then calculated the difference and we made an accompanying video to go with it because it just... Which is sort of undulating ink blot type of things? Yes. Mm-hmm. You did this also with not just the mother of the MP3, as you call Tom's Diner, but with some other pieces that were early on test cases for converting music to MP3 form. That's right. The mother of the MP3 is the one that everybody's heard of, Tom Steiner. But there are also a number of sisters of the MP3 or aunts of the MP3. Those, some of those are Fast Car by Tracy Chapman. And we've got uh, Haydn Trumpet Concerto. And a recording by Ornette Coleman, uh, sort of a snippet of one of his solos. And a test recording of Castanets. And there are a few others. But these ones were also used to test the MP3 early on and are a little bit less famous in sort of cultural, pop culture history. And what are some of the stories about how each song came out when they initially tried to make the MP3? Well, Fast Car presents its own challenges. For example, this song has a full band, so it's got percussion, drums, guitar, voice, and uh, percussion in particular is notoriously difficult to encode into MP3. You get this uh, effect called pre-echo, where things like hi-hats and snare drums are sort of smeared in time, so they don't sound as sharp as they do in the original recordings. It's a really subtle effect that most people don't notice, but it's there if you're listening close enough. So let's play two things. Let's play the Tracy Chapman Fast Car Wave version of the song, which is the nice full version, and then let's play the ghost sounds that you were able to recover from it. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's the good version. I remember when we were driving, driving in your car. Speed so fast, I felt like I was drunk. City lights stay out before. Your arm felt nice, wrapped around my shoulder. And I, I had a feeling that I belonged. I, I had a feeling I could be someone, be someone, be someone. Aw, <laughs> it reminds me of why we all love that song so yeah. much. <laughs> She's amazing. Now let's play the musical elements you were able to capture that were lost when they can compress this and made it into an MP3. Yes, and you'll hear there's a lot of percussion and sort of breath, breathy sound, transients. I hear that, and it's fun to listen to it. It doesn't sound beautiful to right. me. Yeah, by itself, I think it's sort of, it's like the dressing on a salad, and it makes the salad amazing, but by itself, you wouldn't want to just eat dressing on its own, but it has a lot of potential. So what was the aha moment for you when you thought, I'm going to look into the ghost behind this MP3? Well, I was learning a lot about the history of recorded sound, and... I was really curious what kind of music you could make out of MP3s, like 
what is the thing about MP3s that's unique, that's different than all of these other previous formats? And I was talking to one of my teachers one night after our class, the whole, our whole class went out to uh, to this pub up in New Hampshire. <laughs> and so we're sitting there in this noisy pub and I'm kind of explaining my idea to her about how I'm going to make really low quality MP3s and make music out of it. And she said, oh, I misunderstood, you know, over the loud music in the pub. She's like, oh, I'm, I thought you said you were going to make something out of the material that's deleted from the mp3s and i went i just kind of froze (laughs) no that's but that is what i should be doing that's a really good idea tara uh so yeah tara rogers uh gets credit for sort of mishearing uh my terrible idea uh as a really good idea and uh and then i said i should do that and she said yes you should and so so she sort of encouraged me to pursue this project and then you know a year later and a lot of work later it's sort of become this whole avenue of of research when you first posted your ghost in the mp3 online and it went to soundcloud you got so much fan mail from people <laughs> well it was yeah it was really interesting it, it was up for a number of months before it sort of went viral and then all of a sudden, like one day, I think it was on Valentine's Day, actually, like half a million people watched this video. And I, I said, oh, my goodness, <laughs> what's happening? And uh, shortly thereafter, I got a really interesting email from the recording engineer that recorded the mother of the MP3 that recorded Tom's Diner. So he was actually in the studio you know, when that recording was made and he was the one responsible for, you know, setting up the microphones and running the recording session. And so he emailed me and said, hey, I think this project that you're doing is really fascinating. I've I've always, you know, been really interested in this sort of mythology of how this song became known as the mother of the MP3. And I've always preferred the original version. And he sent me all the specs of how it was recorded and said, this is the microphone that we use. And these are the, you know, this was the tape reel-to-reel machine that we used. And and anyways, like, you know, just good work, keep it up or something. <laughs> and I said, all right. And so then we had a little bit of an exchange and... Uh, so that was really interesting. That was probably one of the best ones. Ooh, the real to real version. You need to get your hands. I know. I would love to hear it. I know. I should. I should really email him next time I'm in New York and say, "Hey, could I come here?" What's next for you? Well, I'm making uh, an entire album out of this material using these sort of the ants of the MP3 and all the other, you know, fast car and the Haydn trumpet concerto. And actually, I've been thinking about applying for a Fulbright to go to Vienna and where Haydn is from and studying with a composer there and sort of getting deeper involved with this idea of what is lost from digitization and, you know, what's the essence of music and what's, you know, in a room. I'd like to go hear some of these spaces where this music is performed live. And so it's, it's sort of becoming this whole avenue of research for me. Ryan, this is wonderful. Thank you for sharing your music and your insights on this on With Good Reason. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And let's play your piece, Modernist, now as we're leaving the interview. Yes, and that's actually an anagram of Tom's Diner, which is sort of a rearrangement of all the letters in Tom's Diner. It spells modernist, and that's sort of analogous to what I did with the sound also, I think. (laughs) 
Brian McGuire is a Ph.D. student in Composition and Computer Technologies at the University of Virginia. Up next, Soundscapes of New York. From early morning garbage trucks to the creaking of buildings, there is a rich sonic landscape that defines New York City. Karen Van Langen is a professor of architecture at the University of Virginia and an expert in the field of soundscape architecture. She's been collecting the sounds of buildings in the city and has collaborated with visual artist Jim Welty on an exhibition featuring her recordings and his animation. Karen, you've become an expert in something called soundscape architecture. What is that? Soundscape architecture is an awareness we are trying to develop to allow people to discover the soundscapes that we all live with, but by and large ignore. And we ignore them in part because we're simply not paying attention, or we have earphones on, or we're paying attention to our iPhones. And it's really a way of getting the public to rediscover the sonic environment that we live in. You recently had an exhibit in New York on some of the sounds of the buildings, the public buildings that you'd recorded there. Why New York? Well, New York is very familiar to me. I lived in New York for 30 years, so I know these buildings very, very well. And one of my ways of getting into this whole area was that I was very sensitive, personally, to the sounds of some of these spaces. For example, I can't imagine Grand Central Station without hearing it. It has a huge oceanic sound. And it's such a comforting space to be in, altogether different than arriving at Penn Station, for example, which is chaotic and uncomfortable. Let's play it. Let's play the soundscape you brought with you from Grand Central Station. Okay. There's so many of those sounds. Actually, we take for granted, don't we? It's true, and it's so rich when you begin to listen to it. Um, There's a wonderful quote by John Cage that says, when we are listening, what we mostly hear is noise, but if we really listen, we find it fascinating. And that's really the example here, to just stand in space and listen very, very attentively to all the layers of, of sounds, of nature, of people, of events. It's incredible. I remember being someplace with my mother not so long ago where she stopped and she said, oh, I remember that sound from when I was a girl. And it was something to do with the low chatter of voices on the steamboat platform. So it's the idea that sounds are emotional to us because it depends on what we associate them with. It's true. Deeply emotional. If you were to ask someone about the sounds of their house growing up, you'd be really surprised at how many people can recall very specific sounds about the houses that they grew up in. You also have, I think, what is your favorite building, not just Grand Central, but the Library of New York. 
Oh, the Library of New York is so um, deeply emotional and personal to me because I studied a lot in that building as a young architect. In fact, I, I studied for my architectural licensing exam there. So let's play the sound that you have from the New York Public Library. Which room is this? This is the main Rose reading room. And it is, just to give you a sense of scale, it's the size of a football field. Almost two. It's one of the largest interior spaces in America, and it's almost two blocks long. And it is enormously impressive as a space. It has a terracotta floor and these long oak tables with oak chairs. And when people come and go, they pull those oak chairs in and out. And sometimes if you're sitting in one of those oak chairs, there's a a resonating sound, like the sound of a lion roaring. And there goes a determined woman with high heels. (laughs) It's so interesting to me because I hear pure emotion in all this, because you would think that an architect really would have designed soft, quiet floors, rugs, or some material that is more durable, that would allow absolute silence in a library. But what are you attracted to? I just love this. I love the idea of people coming and going, that I'm in this space with other people, and everyone is, is studying and looking around. It's a, it's a great feeling of security. Yes, really. studying and looking around. Another person has shoved his chair back or her chair back. Let me see. It's true. Let me see. It's the the joy of the public realm, the real joy of being together in space. You also did the Rockefeller Center. What was particular to the sounds of that busy building? Well, I picked a very specific part of Rockefeller Center, not the central part that's in back of the skating rink. But I picked the northern end, which is opposite St. Patrick's Cathedral. It's called the International Building, and it has a very vertical space as an entryway. But it also has a very specific soundscape. And what you hear is the churning of the 1930s escalators that are still there and, by the way, are landmarked. Can you hear the ch-ch-ch-ch-ch? Those are the landmark escalators from the 1930s. And what's so incredible about that discovery is that that's representative of the industrial era that built the whole infrastructure for the Rockefeller fortune, which built the buildings that you are now standing in. I just love your appreciation for the humanity that is evident in the sounds in these buildings. Surely you, when you were starting out to be a young architect, did not think of recording sounds inside buildings. Not at all. Not at all. I wasn't part of my purview. And also, architecture is largely a visual field. So I worked very much on honing my visual skills. When I was the chair of architecture at Parsons, Jean Gardner, who was a very legendary professor there, introduced people to 
uh, architecture through the multiple senses. And she invited a person named David Hikes, the founder of the Harmonic Choir, to come and talk to our students. That was a pivotal moment for me, really, really strong, because he does overtone chanting, and he could show how the overtone chanting would change from one space to another. And that was very, very pivotal for me that particular time. You also recorded Sounds of the Guggenheim. What were the circumstances for that? Well, in this particular recording, I was recording an exhibition that was at the Guggenheim at the time called the Gutai Artists. And they were artists that were practicing in Japan after World War II. And those artists were trying to bring joy, specifically the the wonder of life, back into existence for people who had just come through a terrible war, a terrible bomb. And so there was so much in that exhibition both to look at, like huge, huge um, hanging glass volumes of colored water, for example, that were meant to make people happy and re-engaging back into life. So what happened in this particular set of recordings that I did is there was a young a, a boy. Uh, he was must have been no older than a year and a half or two years. And he kept screaming, in, but not screaming from wanting something, not screaming because he was angry. These were screams of joy. So they matched completely the mission of the of the Gutai artists. And I, I didn't put that together until later on. I kept trying to do the recording without the screams. Then I came back and I was speaking with my partner, Jim Welty, who said, but that's the essence of the entire recording and they're beautiful. Those were happy chirps. <laughs> Do you have another sound project soon down the road? Well, we are working on Washington, D.C. right now to try to understand the sonic qualities of some of the mall buildings that the general public visits. And one of the interesting things we discovered this summer when we recorded the Jefferson Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, of course, is this kind of perfect building and sited in a way that you can see in four directions. And one of them is looking out over the water to see the see the Washington Monument, etc. And when you're in it, about every two or three minutes, you're near Reagan Airport. And you hear the sound of airplanes going over. <laughs> so at first, I thought, oh, that's too bad. But then I began to think about it. And I thought, Jefferson. Jefferson was ahead of his time. The speed of these planes is actually augmenting the feeling of what this memorial really is about, if you think about it that way. So it can either be an irritating sound, or it could be a sound that is very much about the spirit of the man. So, who never knew airplanes, but buildings, bridges, the built environment is dynamic, it's alive, it has sound, it's not dead, and that awareness is very powerful.
Karen Van Langen is a professor of architecture at the University of Virginia. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. In 1909, the great Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy was recorded reading from his last major work, Wise Thoughts for Every Day. Therefore, the question whether thou hast done what thou shouldst have done is of immense importance. For the only meaning of thy life is in doing in this short term alone. That's Tolstoy. You can't understand a word he says. You probably didn't even realize he's speaking English in that clip. Over time, this recording has lost almost all meaning. But it's clear Tolstoy's written words ring just as true now as they did in 1865. At 1,000-plus pages, Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace is an intimidating novel. But University of Virginia professor Andrew Kaufman says it's worth the patience. Kaufman sat down with With Good Reason associate producer Kelly Libby to discuss his book, Give War and Peace a Chance, Tolstoy and Wisdom for Troubled Times. You've described your relationship with Tolstoy as a love affair. Uh, I have. It's been one of the longest relationships of my life. There's something about Tolstoy that keeps bringing me back to his fiction. When I, read, when I read War and Peace, I feel better about being a human being. When was War and Peace first published? So War and Peace first started coming out in publication form in 1865, and it actually was published in installments um, in one of the famous literary journals of the time called The Russian Messenger. Was it an instant success? No. No, it wasn't. Because it was published in installment form, readers were only getting the first part of the novel. They didn't know where it was going to go. Tolstoy didn't know where it was going to go. And people were scratching their heads. They couldn't figure out what this book was because it didn't quite fit any of the genres that they were familiar with. It wasn't exactly a historical novel. It had elements of a family chronicle, but it wasn't a family chronicle. And so part of the genius and the challenge of the book that people didn't immediately appreciate is that it's of its own kind. It is a book about life in the broadest sense, and life does not fit into nice, neat genres, Tolstoy believed. The subtitle of your book is Tolstoy and Wisdom for Troubled Times. Was there trouble in Russia at the time Tolstoy wrote War and Peace? Yes, there's often trouble everywhere, which is part of the universality of the whole theme of troubled times. But in the 1860s, when he was working on War and Peace, that was a particularly difficult era because of the great reforms of Alexander II in the early 1860s, which basically reformed all aspects of Russian society. And so it was an incredibly divisive culture where you had the conservatives arguing that the way forward is a return to the past. The, the progressives and the liberals are arguing, no, we need to march more quickly into modernity and catch up with Europe. And so Tolstoy wanted to understand the roots of all of this divisiveness. 
where were many of these reform-minded ideas coming from? And he traced them back to that formative event in Russian history, the Russia's conquest of Napoleon in 1812, which was a watershed moment. And how does the book begin? Well, first thing that's interesting is the book begins in French. Russia's great national epic opens in French. Why? Because French was the language of the aristocracy. It was the language of cultured people. And and throughout this novel, Tolstoy wants to capture the reality, the social reality of the time, uh, which was a culture that was very obsessed by all things French. They wanted to emulate Fr- France. Um, Napoleon was considered by many a hero. And here, the French are now the enemy. So Tolstoy is sort of turning the tables, where this country that, that Russia has tried to emulate for so long is now the country that they are at war with. And it forces them to recognize that they too, that Russians too, have a unique national tradition that they need to respect. Your book, Give War and Peace a Chance, is organized by topics. These are just some of them. Rupture, success, love, family, courage. Could you share with me some of the wisdom of Tolstoy in some of the chapters in your book? Sure. Why don't we talk about success? I mean, success is a topic that Tolstoy was obsessed with. He was actually incredibly ambitious as a young man. In his 20s, he wrote in his diary, I'm afraid if I had to choose between fame and virtue, I would choose fame. But then when he did achieve success, by any objective standards, the author of both War and Peace and Anna Karenina, he felt like a failure. So he actually took a miserable four-day trek through the countryside in peasant garb and wooden sandals to a nearby monastery to meet with a monk and asked the monk what he should do with his life. Um, and apparently the conversation didn't go very well because the next day he, he went home by train first class. <laughs> you know, I think the thing that we can all relate to in that story is a very American question. How much success is enough success? This is a question that one of the characters in War and Peace grapples with in a very profound way. Uh, the character's name is Prince Andrei Balkonsky, and when the novel opens, he's 27 years old, and he has everything. Good brains, breeding, he's got a beautiful pregnant wife, but none of this is good enough for him. He wants more. So he decides to abandon his wife and his family to go off to the Russian countryside to join the Russian war effort against Napoleon, and on the evening before the Battle of Austerlitz, He dreams that he is going to single-handedly lead Russians into victory the next day, that he is going to become famous as the person who conquered France. Well, here's what happens to him. Early in the battle, he gets knocked over the head. He falls onto the ground. He looks up at the sky, and he notices the lofty, infinite sky with the clouds creeping across it. And he wonders to himself, how is it I've never noticed that sky before? And the reason he's never noticed that sky before is the same reason that most of us often fail to notice the beauty that is all around us. We often fail to appreciate the ordinary moments, the little big moments, because we're so caught up in chasing the next paycheck, the bigger job, the more beautiful plot of land, whatever. And so Tolstoy is telling us, I think, that much of what we consider as success, is a mirage. You know, you finally reach it, and poof, it's gone. What does he have to say about love? There's a a Russian saying, love us when we're black, it's easy to love us white. It's easy to love someone 
when they're perfect or they're pure, white being the color of purity. It's much harder to love someone when they're impure or imperfect. And one of the great insights in War and Peace, Tolstoy teaches us how to love people in all of their imperfection. There's a powerful moment in the middle of the novel when Pierre Bezukhov goes to visit Natasha Rostova, who has just broken off the engagement to Prince Andrei Balkonsky because she thinks she's fallen in love with this young whippersnapper, Anatole Kuragin. And Pierre and Andrei are friends, so Pierre has come to help fix up the situation. And she is ashamed at what she's done, but when he looks into her eyes and sees those shame-filled eyes of hers and the pain that she knows she's caused others and the embarrassment, all of a sudden in that moment, he feels this really powerful connection to her. Not because she's perfect, not because she's dancing in her white satin shoes, you know, at at the grand ball, which she did earlier, but because this is a, a moment of total human vulnerability. And he's able to recognize that and appreciate that. And in, in many ways, that's the moment that he starts to fall in love with Natasha when he sees her in all of her imperfect humanity. That is love. One of the chapters in the middle of the book is called Idealism. And so in War and Peace, this is a book where you have some of the bloodiest scenes in world literature. You have scenes of, of bo- bodies being mangled, lying on the battlefields. You have moments of, of total cynicism. But the more amazing thing is that in spite of that, in spite of that, he never lost his faith in human promise. And War and Peace nicely illustrates something that Tolstoy himself wrote later on in life when he said that, quote, man is flowing. In him there are all possibilities. He was stupid. Now he is clever. He was evil. Now he is good. And the other way around. And this is the greatness of man. War and Peace is a book that reminds us not only who we are, but also who we can become. And it's an idealism that has inspired readers the world over, including people like Nelson Mandela, who was given a copy of War and Peace when he was incarcerated at Robben Island. And he would later say it was his favorite novel, and that War and Peace helped him to develop a much more humane and effective leadership style. You also have a chapter called Truth, What did Tolstoy mean by truth? Hmm. It's a dangerous word. So when Tolstoy says the hero of my tale is truth, the message he's communicating is not his truth or my truth or your truth or the conservatives or the liberals or the Jews or the Muslims or Hindus, but the truth about our shared humanity. There's nearly 600 characters in this book, and every one of the characters is unique and distinct in his or her own way, but there's something that unites all of them, and it is these human experiences. And this is one of the fundamental messages of War and Peace, which is what what makes it such a universal book. And one of the other insights that Tolstoy has in War and Peace that it is often suffering that helps to bring people together. Natasha Rostova learns that in a very personal way. She is mourning the loss of someone very dear to her, but she's doing so in a very self-absorbed way. And then all of a sudden, her family gets the news that one of Natasha's brothers has just been killed in battle. And all of a sudden, Natasha notices her mother shrieking in a way that she's never seen before. She notices her father stumbling with grief 
she's awakened into this new discovery that her suffering is not hers alone, that this is a universal human experience, and all of a sudden the child becomes the adult. That's one of the great insights of War and Peace. The truth is always bigger than any one of us. There's an inspiring passage from Tolstoy in the introduction to your book. It's his philosophy as an artist. Would you read that passage? I don't need to read it. I dream it. Okay. (laughs) I know it by heart. In 1865, when Tolstoy was working on War and Peace, he received a letter from a novelist asking for honest feedback about his novel. And Tolstoy didn't like it because he thought the writer was trying too hard to be topical. He said, quote, The goal of an artist is not to solve a question irrefutably, but to force people to love life in all of its countless inexhaustible manifestations. If I were told that I could write a work of art in which I would definitively resolve all of the social questions of today, I wouldn't spend two hours on such a work. But if I knew that what I write today would be read by the children of today in 20 years and that they would laugh and weep and fall in love with life because of it, then I would dedicate all of my life and all of my time to such a work. That was Andrew Kaufman, a professor of Slavic language and literature at the University of Virginia, interviewed by, with good reason, associate producer Kelly Libby. Andrew Kaufman's book is Give War and Peace a Chance, Tolstoy and Wisdom for Troubled Times. Coming up next, are there actual history lessons to be learned from Disney's Pocahontas? Hollywood has a reputation for getting history wrong. Pocahontas, for example, was never in love with John Smith. My next guest, Jeffrey McClurkin, is a professor at the University of Mary Washington. He was also named a 2014 Outstanding Professor of the Year by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. He says even when movies get history wrong, they teach us lessons about the time in which the movie was made. Jeffrey, you teach a class on history and film. Do you show the cartoon Pocahontas really in your college-level class? I do. If we're trying to teach ourselves how to look at movies with a critical eye, to understand movies as both a secondary source about the past and a primary source about the time in which they were made, Disney's Pocahontas is a terrific place to start. It has all of these moments that reflect pieces of what we know about the colonial experience at Jamestown uh, or what we think we know. Um, But it does things with them that, you know, in classic Disney fashion include, you know, a talking willow tree and a raccoon. But it also has these conversations between John Smith and Pocahontas where they are trying to understand each other. And there's a great clip of that that I think we can play now. It's all right. It's just a handshake. Here, let me show you. Nothing's happening. Uh, No, no, I need your hand first. It's how we say hello. This is how we say hello. Wingapo. Wingapo. And how we say goodbye. Anna. I like hello better. 
even movies that are incredibly bad in terms of their historical accuracy, there still is something for us to be gained as historians to look at them. And so that, that part about the movie Pocahontas representing a moment in time in the 1990s as Americans were trying to grapple with concepts of different cultures coming together and thinking about what that might mean can be gleaned from a movie that has many, many factual historical errors about the founding at Jamestown. To touch on the Civil War period, you have students watch Gone with the Wind and then Glory. I'm curious, have your students generally already seen Gone with the Wind by the time they come to your class? That's a great question. I've been teaching the class for over a decade now, and when I first started teaching it, a significant portion of them had. It was more likely for female students to have seen it than male students. The movie has an incredible power and an incredible staying power. Gone with the Wind continues to affect the way that many Americans understand the Civil War, the antebellum period, the postbellum period, and you can see that in a number of classic Uh, scenes that even Americans who haven't seen the movie will remember. As God is my witness, they're not going to lick me. I'm going to live through this, and when it's all over, I'll never be hungry again. No, nor any of my folk. If I have to lie, steal, cheat, or kill, as God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again. That notion of never going hungry again resonates with people even today. But also, it was a way at getting at the utter devastation of these former princes of the South, right? Right, and that leads into part of the problem of the film, that it perpetuates a myth about the lost cause or about the way that the sort of moonlight and magnolias pre-Civil War South supposedly was. It certainly romanticizes it. The movie manages to capture a lot of the struggle of Southern whites in the post-war period, but it does so really at the expense of, of the experiences of Southern blacks. By contrast, Glory is, um, is, is a movie that does provide a African-American perspective on the Civil War experience. Glory is the story of the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, which was the best known of the early African-American regiments in the Union Army during the Civil War. The great thing about Glory is that it represents the experiences of so many African-Americans who fought in the Civil War on the side of the Union. I don't know. The next film in your series called My Darling Clementine from 1946 I do, however, remember Mate One as a powerful movie that changed my view of the coal mining wars. Sure. So Mate One is made by John Sayles. It's not very well known. Uh, it was financed on a very small amount of money, but it's got, um, it's got a wonderful cast of people. And it's about this, uh, this incident, the Mate One massacre, that occurs in, in uh, 1920s and 1930s West Virginia coal mining towns. You won't be treated like men. You won't be treated fair, but you ain't men to that coal company. Your equipment, like a shovel, a gondola car, a hunk of wood brace. They'll use you until you wear out or you break down or you're buried under a slate fall and then they'll get a new one. The class moves on to the best years of our lives, which is a movie that's made in this 
amazing moment of time right after World War II has ended, and it's not really clear what's going to happen. We, we look back on World War II, and we think of it in many ways through the lens of Vietnam. It's a good war. We see it as the greatest generation. It's a war we win, right? But Best Years of Our Lives looks at the experiences of three veterans returning home at a time when we didn't know that things were going to be quite as good afterwards. And so it's, it's a remarkable snapshot of time. I know there are other films that you show, but do you think that if we took all the films that illustrate some aspect of American history, that a complete stranger to America would have an incredible overview, you know, in 24 hours? Wow, that's I hadn't thought of it that way, but to sort of think about someone not knowing anything about this and coming to it, it, it gets at the core of what the class is about, which is these movies are interpretations of a particular set of time periods, but they are themselves products of the time period in which they were made and the people who made them. Uh, One of the movies that we haven't talked about is Born on the Fourth of July, which is the story of Vietnam veteran Ron Kovacs' experiences in Vietnam and then becoming wounded and, and dealing with the realities of being paralyzed and a paralyzed veteran in the post Vietnam period. Are you drunk again? Hey mom. He's drunk again. Eli, leave a drunk for a son. Leave that you leave that alone. Leave give that to me. You can't stay in this house. This is stay. what you believe in, but I don't. I don't believe in him anymore. Go to bed, honey. It's he only okay. had to spend three days up there. Me, I got to spend the rest of my life. I wish I were dead like him. You don't know what you're saying. That's a problem, Mom. I'm not dead. I got to live. I got to live and I got to roll around. I got to remind him of Vietnam. And you don't want to know. You don't want to see us. You want to hide us. Seriously, you can't drink in this house. they told us. Go fight. Go kill. Sergeant man, rain car. Let's go, let's go, let's So born on the 4th of July is reflective of the director Oliver Stone's perspective about the particular problems of post-Vietnam America. Isn't it scary when film directors do tackle a piece of history because we as the consuming public have no way to influence the accuracy of the film? Yeah, it's absolutely terrifying to me as a historian in part because I spend a great deal of time working with working with students to try to correct some of the notions that they come in with from having seen these movies. But it's even scarier because there's that entire audience that that never come into a history classroom and never pick up a book to learn more about a particular subject. What's incredibly important for us as professors and scholars now is that we acknowledge that text is only one piece of the world uh, of information. It is critical that we approach students where they are. We need to be sure that what we are doing is providing them with the tools to critically analyze not just texts, but also films and documentaries and websites and the entire range of media options and information options that they have now. If not, I think we we cease to become relevant. Jeffrey McClurkin is a professor and special assistant to the provost for teaching technology and innovation at the University of Mary Washington. He was also named a recipient of the Virginia Outstanding Faculty Award. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world, uvahealth.com. Support also comes from Smithfield, 
a global food company committed to providing food in a responsible way so consumers can share meals and memories with family and friends. SmithfieldFoods.com With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Our production assistant is Georgiana Reed, and our intern is Emily Hayes. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.